Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Number one, to help you write more. Number two, to help you write better. And number three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I offer my own opinions on writing. Sometimes listeners like you send in their first page of the novel they're working on and I offer some suggestions about ways they could make it better. I've done two free uh, writing courses by podcast that you can download and listen to and, and work through and I speak to authors and people in publishing and sometimes psychologists and neuroscientists about the art of writing stories or sometimes the art of telling stories about things that really happened or sometimes the way it's about communicating stuff and today um i'm talking to dean burnett who is a writer about psychology and mental health and neuroscience his background is in neuroscience uh, and he's written several books including the happy brain the idiot brain and his latest one psychological about what mental illness is you know how the brain goes wrong and I wanted to chat to him because you know as if you've listened to the show at all you'll know that mental health and how the brain works and the science of the human experience is really interesting to me one from just a perspective of nerdy mechanics and all the stuff we're learning and uh, my, you know, my daughter's been involved in some uh, s- some studies and some trials where they, you know, I saw her putting her them. They put her into an fMRI machine, and uh, you know, I've seen them scanning her brain with an FNIRS, uh sort of helmet strokes head cap. It's like a kind of rubber cap with all these wires coming out of it. That Mont- anyway, um, I'm you know I mentioned that in the talk, but Dean you know this is where he writes about these things and he does so in a very sound I don't want to don't want to put you off his books but it's going to say in a very sober and balanced way um in a very personal way and in a often amusing way and trying to find interesting things about them don't get me wrong but i mean it it tends to be in a balanced way where he's sort of following the science and trying to reflect sometimes the kind of messy ambiguity about what we know and what we don't know and um, I think that makes him very unusual um, within the space of popular science communication and there's some great people in writing sort of well-received books in popular medicine popular science popular mental health don't get me wrong that not meant to be a broadside but I think um, it's it's difficult when you're not making some kind of like ridiculous claim. As someone who's read a lot of books in the um, pop psychology domain or the kind of pop science or the smart thinking, it's sometimes called areas. Uh, it's just, it's re- it's, it is refreshing to chat with people and read people who have, who managed to sort of bring a kind of level of epistemological humility to their work, who kind of go, you know, I've studied this and not only do I not know any everything, but neither do 
scientists in general and the field in general. There's still some unknowns. Uh, but here's what we do know. And, and that's kind of what me and Dean, we talked about that and his background in doing sort of stand up as well. And how and I've been, you know, I've made a point over the past few episodes to try and speak to some nonfiction writers as well, because I'm really interested in the art of nonfiction, really, and how you try and create stories out of facts, you know, like. On one hand, kind of neuroscience and mental health, you you know, it's a, there's a plethora of stories. On the other hand, if you're trying to drill down into the science of it, there's ways that that could be completely unintelligible to a general audience or extremely boring, right? And so that's kind of what I've been talking to Dean about, is how he takes, when you can talk about anything in these areas and when you talk about incredibly complex things like the connections and interactions between different parts of the human brain and, and you know, how you translate that into something for a general audience that they can get something out of. And, you know, he does his best to answer all those questions. And I'm really having, and this was purely for me, but I think actually it might be really interesting for you. Um, towards the end, I just got Dean to do a little whistle top stop tour of some of the neurotransmitters right like serotonin and dopamine and and just and just said what what do they what do they do just give us some quick sort of takeaways for this um because i see a lot of stuff out there uh a lot of stuff on instagram and facebook particularly of people sharing pictures that say here's how to get your serotonin up here's how to get your dopamine up and things like this and um almost all that information is either partially false or completely false and so I just thought it'd be great to get a trained neuroscientist to to just talk to actually talk about it so you can hear from someone who at least has you know some grounding in it and is likely to be getting closer so I mean, he, he did that as well and I found that really interesting and useful and I think you will too and so there are some like although you know we sometimes we're talking about craft in this episode there are also some like just like clear takeaways that you can have and when you finish listening to dean you'll be a little bit more knowledgeable you'll have you'll know a bit more and you'll be able to take that away and and share that with your pals i hope you're not only well but super well but if you're not then thanks for tuning any in anyway and i hope you don't tune in anymore it's a legacy phrase isn't it but you understand what it means um, it's like copying and cutting and pasting. We don't use paste anymore. But it's become a tuning in is, is is now a lovely legacy phrase that just means for turning up. But um, thanks for that. And you know, if you're not feeling super great, then I hope that I can, we can take your mind off that over the next hour and a bit. If you like, or even if you hate the show, um, if, if you want to support it, you can uh, go to my coffee page. That's ko fi.com forward slash Claire and drop me a few beans to help me keep the lights on I've also provided links to a couple of Dean's books in the show notes that's it really don't have much more to say I always feel when I'm doing these intros I don't want to overcook it because then you might not ever get to the talk and that would be be sad and also because there's like inevitably new listeners who've come because of the guest and then I just like salt the earth by, by, by Tim claring all over the intro, <laughs> and then you don't get through to the actual chat. So thank you for tuning in. 
get out of your face now. Um, this is um, me, obviously, that was going to be part of it, chatting with uh, author Dean Burnett. The first thing I, I wouldn't mind asking, um, if it's not too um, a thunderingly obvious place to start, is how you got in to psychology and neuroscience and psychiatry how that you know what path led you down wanting this to be an area that you've basically given your life yeah it's um it's a very random and weird and uh chaotic path i wonder i wouldn't say i wouldn't say anyone don't do what i did because i don't think you could do what i did because it was none of it was really planned and it was all of a bit of a chaotic mess so i mean think about this a lot recently because obviously we do a lot of stuff about the book and other podcasts and interviews and you know, the question, this question comes up a lot as in you know, how did you start interest, being interested in brains and I think the earliest example I can think of of me being into you know, just becoming fascinated with brains was when I was eight years old and getting ready to go to school and watching TVAM at the time which was the, the morning show um, and Paul Giamatti was on the film critic and he was doing a review of Robocop 2 uh, I was an eight-year-old child in, uh, in 1990, and like uh, Robocop was just so cool for us kids. He's just like you know, like a real-life video game thing. We all, well, it was uh, Robocop was just it. You know, he was uh, he was a crazy about Robocop, and so the sequel coming out was a big deal. I was oh Robocop two, what's that like? And I was interested in hearing about it, and he hated the film. He said it was terrible, awful, and you know, a lot of people have shared this opinion since. And but I remember him, <laughs> vividly remember him saying, well, "I said this." It's gratuitous. There's one scene where Robocop karate chops a brain. And there isn't. In that. He actually smashes a brain because it's in a sort of you know, by cyborg jar. You know, it's a sci-fi. It's fine. But that sort of phrase has really hit me like, really hit me hard. And I remember having nightmares about it of people going around karate chopping brains. <laughs> so I remember thinking, you can't do that to brains. So this weird little, that's my early year, earliest example of being a very pro-brain <laughs> type guy. And... Uh, yeah, and, I mean, uh, uh, and, and I suppose if if that was making you have that kind of like visceral response, how did you feel later on when you learned about um, sort of uh, what's it called, like bilateral the hemisphere, oh. like when you split oh, brain corpus, surgery? Because yes. that is that yeah. is all that is almost yeah, like I mean, a karate chopping yeah. a brain, not yeah. not not to do down the work of those. No. People that is a corpus callosotomy, which is one of my favourite things to say out loud. Uh, it took a lot of practice to get it right, but yes, you sever the corpus callosum, so there you have two technically independent brain hemispheres which can act somewhat uh, autonomously of the other. Um, it's not quite as simple as that, but yeah, it's, um, it's one of my favourite things to talk about because it's just a cool word, corpus callosotomy. Um, but yeah, well, in that sort of the earliest example, I think I've become interested in brains just as a thing, but I didn't. It sort of I think it sort of stayed buried for a long time. But I got into science by watching more by watching more sci-fi and then gone to Star Trek. And obviously I was a small child in a remote South Wales working class valley. There was a um, very small community, very isolated. Um, I've, I've described my home valley, the Garrow Valley, which is my like, Twitter handle is like that, uh, as a dead-end valley many, many times. And I don't mean it as an insult. It's literally geographically a dead-end valley. There's no through road. It's basically one gargantuan cul-de-sac. So, you know, you didn't get a lot of contact with the outside world. Uh, this is all pre-internet days, pre-phones. You're going to get, you know, because of the mountain and stuff, you've only got three TV channels any one time, really. So, you know, the outside world is kind of a mystery and seeing all these sci-fi things, I did of exploring, got me interested in science generally. So I became sort of a science fan in school. 
and uh, got quite enthusiastic to the point where you know, I went to a large school, large state school, because of the catchment area I was in, and it wasn't the most uh, well-funded, or it wasn't, didn't have a lot of academic achievement, but they tried their best. And by the time it got to, you know, school of a thousand students, more than then some, time it got to A-levels, uh, if you added up the A-level physics, chemistry and biology classes, you only got seven students. And of those seven students, three were me, because I was the only one doing all the sciences. Oh, wow. So I was literally half my school science output. So I became like the science guy. And then they said he should go to university. I didn't know what that was. And I said, uh, okay, um, I'll, I'll look into this. This sounds interesting. More school after this. That sounds fun. Uh, but no, you haven't got to go home after every, every day or live with your parents anymore. So yeah, I'd like to look around for something to do. I didn't even know really. I was so I should apply for Cambridge, which was a bad idea because I had no concept of that. But Cardiff, you know, just down the road, um, did a neuroscience course. I was, oh, that's interesting. And uh, came to Cardiff, studied neuroscience, and then uh, sort of finished the finished degree. Thought, do I want to do a PhD? And I, I thought I did, but I thought that I wondered. I wasn't sure. I was to tell myself that because I didn't want to get a real job. So then I spent like nearly two years uh, embalming cadavers from medical school, which is as real as it gets, really, in terms of getting your hands dirty. Oh. Yeah. Um, which sort of, that was uh, a very visceral experience. And what it did do, though, um, and always like the Bennetts back home are a very performing family, like they're, they're, they're very outgoing. And I was always the shy one. I was always an anomaly as far as the family's concerned. Not like they rejected me, but... I was the odd one out, like I didn't fit into the usual Burnett mould. They are quite gregarious, outgoing. Um, I've said it many times, back home they're known as the Von Kraps, because um, you know, I like the Von Kraps, but they, they can't sing, but that doesn't stop them, <laughs> that, uh, which is uh, a friendly <laughs> joke we all have. Um, but I have, I have no musical abilities, but I, you know, like a lot of my family and uncles and my father were all like on stage talking to, doing jokes and stuff. So well, I always wanted to try stand-up, but I never had the guts to do it. But when you've got your hands, you know, up to your elbows in guts, little guts every day uh, of the of the recent deceased, that sort of really changes your threshold for what you're willing to put up with. Because <laughs> I've always been scared of doing stand-up. But now, when I, from my, my current perspective, if I do stand-up and no one laughs, if they're still breathing, that's a step up from my day job. So I got into stand-up <laughs> and tried it, and it went quite well. Um, got really into it. And then I started liking writing this. Step, and then I decided, I actually do want to do a PhD because, you know, I still have the interest, even though... I had worked and um, yeah, so I sort of got into postgraduate neuroscience research and stand-up comedy at the same time, which it, it wasn't necessarily a big help for the PhD side of things, but it did give me a sort of a creative outlet. In, and I eventually mm. realised that as I enjoyed performing stand-up. I'll still do it if I'm invited or asked, but I always like the writing most. I always like sitting down and writing sets most. I like writing jokes, like writing material, like writing quirky observations on stuff. And that was always the stuff I really enjoyed. Then I thought, oh, I've got to tell someone this now. Hmm. You know, <laughs> I feel like that's the annoying part of it. But um, so, yeah, so it's sort of um, sort of, you know, gradual organic development came from all that direction, really. So seeing Robocop 2 review <laughs> one time in my childhood and then uh, now a neuroscience author, which is a strange, strange path to take. It, it, it sounds like you, you embarked on a course of kind of exposure therapy to, 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 to slowly sort of like unconsciously rob yourself of any kind of like that visceral reaction that you had. You're like, right, OK, well, how can I how can I normalize my reaction? Well, I guess I'm going to I'm going to prep cadaver, <laughs> cadavers for two yeah. years. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like in, I was a very shy child, very retired, very meek, um, very, you know, very not outgoing. Um, sometime when I was a teenager, that sort of, I think, just became sick of that. As in, I, 
think I lost the association between why why am I shy now? Like I think I went through my growth spurt. I was a rather large child, so I was shy because of that, and you know, um, other things. And no, I I realized well, I've no, no reason to be shy anymore per se. I'm the I'm the I'm the achiever now. So it came out my shell a bit that way. And university helped, of course. You can meet new people. You can reinvent yourself. And I don't think I did reinvent myself so much as the neuroses I'd sort of built up in school were. I could just leave those behind because, like, well, I don't need to. These guys don't even know what I was like back then. Like, you know, a small community, no one knows me already, so I don't have to, you know, assume everyone knows this about me or my history and stuff. So, yeah, it was sort of, sort of like a filter, really, of going to that direction. But, um, yeah, I've got involved with comedy plays and stuff. But you know, the idea of just standing on stage as yourself, talking to people, was just too much. You know, just I needed support. I needed to be able to fall back on the character. And then, like I say, when you Bomb cadavers every day. He's like, right, this is bad. This is a. There's not really anything you can go. You can go from here. So, how is doing stuff going to be worse? You know, Ten minutes of your life. The worst case scenario, nobody laughs. <laughs> that, you know, that, you're used to that in your day job. So, um, yeah, but I it did. I'm writing about it now, actually, in that I do wonder how much that job affected me, both positively and negatively, because it was such an it was like a very, I won't say it was a very emotional job in terms of, you know, I wasn't constantly weeping because you, you can't, you can't function like that. But it is, you know, it's one of the most visceral things you can do to be exposed to a deceased human body. Um, and, you know, it, it, we, we were putting them there up for medical students. Like the whole point of it was it was a medical dissection theatre. So students in Cardiff Medical School would come and dissect, uh, you know, spend nine months dissecting a preserved cadaver. It's my job to preserve them. So they lasted and, you know, practice surgery, learn anatomy. It was all, you know, it was all for good reasons. But even like the first week of term when they first came in the room, we'd always lose like three or four students who just like, I cannot do this. I cannot be up close and personal with a dead body. And we're not talking about someone just wandering off the street here. These are, you know, medical students. The hardest course to get into requires the most work. During your teens, they must have studied constantly and they beat out God knows how many people who, meet the grade but don't have quite the right qualities or something after all that they still couldn't go through with it you know so it, it is a real strong missile reaction and i had to i i wasn't there for my education i was there because i needed rent money you know i needed to survive and so i had to bottle up my emotional reactions or just like suppress them or control them as best i could but you do, do that long enough it becomes a habit you know you sort of become sort of stoic and closed off but i think you'll probably if you meet someone who's a teacher when in you know, for the first time in a party or something, you don't know that. But once they say they're a teacher, you often go, oh, yeah, you've got that vibe. You know, you've got that sort of calm, that sort of like you know, imposing control because you need to do that for your job. And I, I sort of became kind of, I won't say closed off, but sort of, you know, more stoic than I would probably like to be or think would it be ideal. And at the same time, you also regularly have to call the relatives of the recently deceased so you can get you know, the remains of their loved ones who's volunteered for this. And you have to go from being stoic and then suddenly being as compassionate as possible, being empathetic, because you're calling the recently bereaved and asking, can we have your loved one's body? And that's, you can't do that so, you know, stoically. You can't do that dispassionately. You have to be as respectful, as considerate, as open as possible. So it was like a, a weird emotional whiplash. And, you know, like go from one extreme to the other quite constantly. And it, I do think that informed how I approach things a lot. I'm far more clinical than perhaps I would have been otherwise, but also quite able to be open and engaged and respect other people's feelings. And I think that comes across in a lot of my work, as in I can be detached. I can talk about these things in very objective ways, neutral ways, which um, 
in ways which I think destigmatize or like sort of demystifies it. Like, look, don't be scared of this. This is a thing. You know, it's very practical, very objective, very straightforward approach, but not in a way that sort of this is this is a thing. We're all things. We're all irrelevant. You're you're irrelevant. You know, you're just a meaningless sack of carbon clinging to a rock. That's what you are. I'm like, I don't, I don't I like that. I don't do that because you know you've had to be controlled and emotional at the same time. It, you know, that that will have a lasting effect on you. I think that comes across in how I approach my work. I I don't want to I don't want to sort of engage in overreach here, but I'm just aware that like, when you were talking about doing the look doing these cadavers and stuff, it might seem like a, a an odd comparison, but it made me think about the psychological effects of like the astronauts who went mm. to the moon, and that the that there's you know handful of people who've done that, and when they return and it was really didn't hit them until they returned, and it was their ability to cope afterwards, and it always struck me that it became a quite isolating experience because they it's you know when you're a teacher everyone's been to mm. school so actually there's a common currency that you can have like a the school chat with people and people go oh, I I kind of get what your job is even if I've only been an end user yeah. of that job like whereas I imagine your position doing that meant that you had access to some knowledge and were very aware of stuff that everyone intellectually knows must go on that they don't think that the cadaver fairy <laughs> just takes them away and we know medical research happens but actually it's just not a reality of most people's lives so you're going from that situation to being sort of next to someone in the queue at the supermarket or something who's just got no access to what you've been through and I, I wonder whether how you think, whether you think that your stand-up and your book writing has a, sort of allowed you to shed, <laughs> to help, to basically sp spread that or create a kind of community around it or to basically be able to get some of those things out that otherwise you just didn't have any kind of common language to speak with most people you encounter. Yeah, definitely. There's a big part of that. I mean, <clears throat> I've done even like workshops and stuff for The Guardian and things where I've said this and that the main rest of my writing the main ethos or the main sort of assumption that I always fall back on is that the person reading this whatever I'm writing the person reading it they are at least as smart as I am but they just don't know what I know and I think that's a really useful sort of benchmark to always aim at because I I think a lot of academic writing non-fiction writing sort of scientific writing gets criticized for that and a lot of time it's valid as in I know more than you, so I have to explain this in very simple language in ways which will inevitably come across as condescending or patronising or just sort of aloof. Because, you know, I think I think the, the average non-expert is uh, assumed to be sort of less capable. And I don't think... I think capability is not the right way to look at it. As in they're perfectly capable of understanding this. They just haven't had the exposure to the education or the learning and the experience that I've had. So I'm just... I always just assume that I'm... Well, talking to someone who's at least my intellectual equal, uh, if they're smart to me, great. And then I'm going to do. Uh, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I know I could be wrong. I know someone might not be as smart, but even if they're not as smart as me about this, it doesn't mean they can't understand. It's really hard to pin down someone's intellectual abilities. So yeah, that, that's always been the general thrust of my writing: is that I'm not talking down to people, or at least I desperately try not to talk down to people. Some people still see it that way because that's inevitable. It's going to happen when you're using complex words and big terms and things like that, then you will have people say, this is too much for me, and I think he's insulted my intelligence. But it's never my intention, but it can happen. But um, 
yeah, the comedy side of things, it's a similar perspective. In you're trying to share your unique perspective with people and make them relate to it. And I feel like I've encouraged any sort of someone who wants to get into science communication or science writing to, I say, do stand up if you if you get the option because it does make you force you to experience that situation where you're on stage in front of people. Like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like you know, I'm. I can walk onto a stage now, and some people in the audience might recognize me. So that guy, I'm not a, you know, I can I can walk on the street constantly without ever being mobbed. That's not a thing I ever have. So to walk on stage and present myself, hello, I'm a stranger, <clears throat> and like you have paid money to see me, a stranger, entertain you, and I've only got a few minutes to do that with my words and my delivery and my my way of presenting things. And if you don't like it, you, you know you have you're an ob- obligation to react and stuff. So I think it's a real, you know, it gives you that skill straight away to say, like, how do you engage people straight away? Speak to them on their level. Because you can't condescend to a stand-up audience unless it's part of a character where you're doing it as in, like, where you're actually the idiot. And I've seen it so many times, like, new actors who think you have to be confident. But confident means, like, I'm going to tell you people why you're all stupid and I'm not. And that inevitably just, they just crash and burn because people in the crowd, are, no, it's a status thing. Like, they are under no obligation to accept that, you know, if... If like Frankie Boyle does it, fair enough, because you know, he's earned his position as a massively famous act, and people have paid lots of money to see him. He can, he can, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's good at it. Um, whereas you know, the average random person, open mic night, can't do that. And there are plenty of comedy things or like uh, formats which allow scientists and like experts and academics to engage in, you know, in, do stuff in front of an audience. But even though I think they're always in a safer context, in like they they build as this is an audience of people doing comedy about science. This is a an event for academics to show you how funny they can be, and everyone who's enjoying it was part of that. Is obviously already interested in that. I think to do a pure stand up gig, to stand up in front of complete strangers and say, "I think I can make you laugh. I'm going to try that now." Is five minutes of, and even if you don't succeed, at least you know what that's like. You know, you know the, the feeling of, and I think that's what I always try to think back to so if i was telling this you know what i'm writing now to a complete stranger <clears throat> would they be interested would they care what what i need to make them care i need to or at least give them a reason to, to be invested in what i've got to say so yeah that um you know that that uh, unique experience that uh, original insight is a big part of what i do but i don't think it makes me superior i think that's the sort of um an important point to say like yes i've got this unique information I have access, but I want to share this. But that doesn't mean I'm better than you. It just means I've got something that you could use. So, you know, here it is. Take it. If you want to buy my stuff, that's even better. You know, I'm happy with that. But uh, it's nice to have a more uh, lofty aspirations, I suppose. I was going to say, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about status, because that's often quite a, you know, status games are such an intrinsic part of stand-up comedy. And I feel like, not games, but st- Authority is such an interesting element of science writing as well. And I was speaking to um, the uh, YouTuber and uh, cardiologist uh, Rohin Francis a while back, and he was saying that one of the problems with science communication is that if you sound very sure, people take that as an indication of you sound authoritative. Mm. And when you sort of declare something very clearly, people take that as knowledge. You know, in the same way, if a building was on fire and someone went, follow me, I know the way out, you'd probably be more likely to follow them than someone go, well, this is actually quite a complex problem, right? We need to figure this out. And so I wonder if you could just reflect a bit on how you deal with simultaneous, with like the 
real complexity of the material you're dealing with, trying to convince the reader you should follow or listen to me, like I'm worth listening to on this while navigating that because it's a tricky path right and when you look at research there's so you know I'm not going to but the phrase more research is needed <laughs> yeah. is an internal <coughs> joke right and so how how do you do that without just writing a book that just goes the way you just throw your hand up and go it, who knows? You know, I, I'd be really interested in that because that seems to me to be the central problem unless you just push it all aside and go, well, I'm just going to tell you what I think and present it as fact. <laughs> well, that's actually a sort of an interesting aspect of my work, I suppose, because I've had a lot of sort of time to reflect on this because I didn't think uh, I'd ever be allowed to write a book because in the academic science world, I'm not a top flight scientist. And I never got that point. I've had a run of real bad luck in my research, my PhD. I never got to be postdoc. I never got... Um, my name on any, you know, my first author papers or anything like that. So, you know, I, I on, a, on a, in a purely academic sense, I don't have the breadth of a CV. Pardon me. And um, if you look at most like non-fiction uh, books or like science books, they are usually written by people who are kind of quite high achievers in the field, and they have like um, you know they're established as oh they're the leading expert or one of the leading voices in this field, this field, that field, and another. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get to do that because I'm never going to be in that position. Uh, but it turns out it was my ability to talk about it and my tendency to do so, which people were interested in. So I ended up in this odd situation where, like, I think a lot of people refer to me rather than most, well, I would argue, leading or more leading neuroscientists. And that's, and I think that's an interesting line to walk because I realised in hindsight that it's probably given me more advantage because if someone's an established voice in the field, like if they are high-ranking, high, well-known person, that means they got there because they have this body of research which got them to that point. And they've published a lot of papers, they've shown this effect, that effect. But that means they have stakes. You know, They have to say, this theory in this particular field, which is uncertain, is like what my, what my credibility is based on. So I can't then say, oh, I was wrong this whole time. And so you will get a lot of science writers who are more confident or at least present to be more confident saying this is how it is and I don't have to do that because I don't have any particular you know body of research which my credibility rests on so my tactic uh, to answer the question is to sort of be more upfront about the uncertainty because in my latest book like psychological I say this is you know it's all about mental health as far as we currently understand it and I, I keep referring back to the fact that no, this is how we currently understand it this is the current body of evidence combined has led to these particular conclusions. But these are always in flux. These are always being changed. And I would explain like how you know, the DSM or the ICD, in the uh, two like, texts which define what the medical world recognises as men mental health disorders and not, or you know, associated conditions. These are being revised all the time because we still don't have a perfect understanding of mental health. But every patient who reports in, every, every, new, every interesting case which is written up, every drug study, every <clears throat> longitudinal study, every population survey does provide more data and therefore our opinions and conclusions can be revised. So particularly when my field of neuroscience, particularly when we're still exploring the brain, still getting more and more breakthroughs, which lead to more and more knowledge. So again, my tactic is to make it upfront, make that obvious upfront, saying we, we do not know for certain uh, the answers yet. But that doesn't mean we don't know anything. And I think that's something which people overlook or sort of it's a simplistic conclusion people jump to saying 
yeah, well, scientists don't know everything. No, not everything. But we know plenty. You know, we have plenty of things we are quite certain about and will happily tell you about those. Like we know that a neuron works this way. We know that the synapses and neurotransmitters are integral for this process. We know that the hippocampus is involved in memory. So you know, the things we can be confident about and should be confident about. Uh, but I think as long as you're not denying the uncertainty or denying the, um, you know, the, the complexity of it all, that's where I think it's important. I, mean, I think I, I, I think I've been told before. I, I have a, I have a t- tendency to use like passive voice a lot, saying you know, it seems to some, or it could be said, or some argue that. And a lot of sentences I do start with that, but I think that's important because that is the case. Like I, I cannot tell people this is absolutely one hundred percent certainly how the brain works in this way because like, nobody knows that. But I think that can be an intriguing aspect in itself. Saying this is what we currently think, but we don't know. Like, nobody knows this stuff, so. They, you know, people like a bit of mystery. They like a bit of, um, I mean, not uncertainty, but sort of, you know, like a potential, like there's things to be discovered. You know, people like like the idea of not nobody knows everything yet. There's, there's stuff there, you know. Um, so like, I, I try to work it into my work rather than sort of avoid it or sort of try and, try and you know, explain it away. So, yeah, I, I, I make it a big part of what I write rather than sort of try and, avoid or suppress it so that's how i get around it i, I don't <laughs> so i just leap, I just leap on that fence and st- sit on it and hope for the best <laughs> so. well well th- that's what i find refreshing in your work and i think it's notable that whenever i've spoken to when i've spoken to top neuroscientists in the the field your book i think is you, your work is one of the only ones that people have recommended i go away and oh, cool. read i think <laughs> certainly from within the field like that's how i first that's actually how i first heard about you was from speaking oh. to neuroscientists <laughs> i did not know this was a thing I'll be and, and, and then of course and then of course i've looked around and gone oh like loads of people are reading this who aren't experts as well I'm oh, not no, I, trying know, to, I know sometimes it can be a it can be a backhanded <laughs> yeah. compliment to go well 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 you have a niche you're big in japan you know you're very you have a niche following amongst big in poland actually how um, happy know <laughs> yeah but um but the, but uh, i wonder and i'm not uh, oh interest and, and the one thing i want to say you're talking about not having any stakes in it i wondered if you this is i don't know if you read that paper that came out yesterday about um uh, it's called uh, putting the self in self correction about them looking at psychologists and asking them mm. whether they at times they later gained doubt in their own um, theories and discovering that all of the people who answered or most of them didn't actually make their own doubts public because of course those are now papers that their citations are a metric for them to stay mm. in their position and they don't want to undermine themselves so it's I think it's really interesting what you're saying that there are certain career pressures that make it really difficult to back out of a, and I'm not suggesting corruption or anything like that, but there are just certain pressures that make it very difficult as a theorist to dig out the foundations from underneath yourself. Um, and, 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 and what you're saying seems to sort of, well, the, the, the not having that makes it easier to sort of hold things a bit more mm. loosely, I think. Is yeah. What you're saying, well, like, right? yeah, the, when I said about, <clears throat> I didn't have any first author papers and that, um, Oh, that's a big deal if you want to progress in the research and academia world because, you know, you might have heard the phrase publish or perish. And if you don't have any papers under your name, any published studies, then, pardon me, that means you are viewed, rightly or wrongly, as a less able or less successful scientist. And that's a big deal when you're trying to apply for jobs as a scientist in the world of research. 
So, yeah, it is definitely a thing. And obviously those who do succeed have you know, published a lot more. And therefore, you know, what you've published, what, what papers your name is attached to, is a big part of your status or your ability to work and you know, your, your, your position in the field. So questioning what you've done is, you know, it's not just a case of, you know, a bit of self-reflection, a bit of, um, you know, oh, but no, I, I wouldn't do that again now, like, you know, any regrets sort of thing. It's more like this is genuinely, you know, this could undermine my entire workload, you know, if you, especially if you're high up in your supervising dozens of students as well and stuff and you've got books written about it, then, yeah, you will become more protective of your legacy uh, because, you know, it, it, it's a big part of how you function. And as someone, well, obviously I do have a legacy now. I've got four books out and I'm working on more. But, um, but like, no, I don't have any particular papers which set the world on fire or like who made me the most um, respected person. But I actively quite like you know, flagging up when I've got something wrong because I think that's important. And I mean, Ian, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a privileged position to be in technically. You know, it's weird to say, I, I'm lucky I get to be wrong, but that's I think that's a big part of it because um, I've done it quite a few times. And, and I think, oh, I wrote this article a while ago um, in The Guardian, for example, and as I read it back, I said, oh, I put it my Twitter thread so I don't work with them anymore. So look, right, here's a few things I said here. Now, here's why I wouldn't say that now because I think this was wrong. I think that wasn't right. I wouldn't do that again. This isn't quite how it works. And if you see uh, my, um, the, the article which I wrote for The Guardian, which got me first notice probably was the one about Robin Williams um, uh, he passed away and I wrote an article about why suicide is not selfish and depression is not selfish and didn't think anything of it and I just wanted to put that out there because that was a position you know he, he died by suicide and so many people were saying oh just so selfish to do that and I thought well that, you can't keep saying that because that's not how depression works at all and I wrote an article quickly saying that's not how it works and apparently I was the first person to say that because like it got read two million times over the next three days which is like no one expected that, I, at least all me, and that actually accelerated the talks in the book world I was having about doing a book for someone. So, so that was really useful. But even then, I, I've I've adapted that article for my first book. I've addressed it again in sort of this new book, and you know, each time my my opinion becomes more nuanced. Like last time, when the, the article itself was, was like a chisel, now I would use a scalpel. So, but, you know, you have to go through these cycles to be able to learn these things, and when you learn them publicly, then it involves it up and saying, yeah, okay, that wasn't how I'd do it now. I don't think I was right about that. And I enjoy doing that because I think defending a position when you're clearly wrong, it just sounds exhausting, you know? It sounds like people who dig their heels and say, no, no, even though I've been caught out completely, I am not wrong because uh, I don't want to be wrong. I'm like, well, that just sounds like a sort of mental stress. And I, I, I like, it's so much more relaxing to say, yeah, guys, I screwed up. Yeah, that was me. Sorry. <laughs> it's just so much easier. And people go, oh. people like it too. They go, oh, cool. Okay, well. It weirdly makes you more credible, I find, which is weird. Take takes the wind out of out of the out of the of the, the sails, or it certainly takes a lot of the pressure out of the argument when the other party says, "Oh yes. yeah, yeah, I'm wrong." You can't the, the ability to continue being angry at that point is you're like, "Ah, good, good I'm glad yeah. you're wrong." Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're we're <laughs> that's I guess we're done. Cool. Do we go and have yeah. a coffee? Um, can I ask you? Uh, you know, because. Um, and I'll just, you know, just to say I will, there'll be links to all of Dean's books in the uh, show notes of today's episode. But I, so I've read The Idiot Brain, The Happy Brain. I hope I'm getting the titles right. And I'm about halfway through Psychological at the moment. Um, and I, won, I wondered if you could, because you talked about depression. I think that's a great way of sort of jumping into this, that there's a kind of, I've been 
maybe I'm incredibly naive, but I'm shocked to I've been well shocked, maybe surprised and a bit taken aback by how factionalized a lot of the discussion around mental health can be. I suppose I expected there to be people saying, oh, just pull yourself together and people saying mental health's a real thing. But then even within mental illness discussions, the sub factions within there and the uh, the ang the real sort of emotion that, that that is on multiple sides and i wonder if you can talk a bit about that i i know depression tends to be an area that's polarized but i think it's true of lots of different conditions and the way we talk about them nowadays i wonder if you could talk about that and how you've tried to engage with that because it's a it's a big yeah, subject yeah. I'm going to say in the le in the least revelatory <laughs> thing yeah. ever. No, but it's totally valid because it is uh, I guess it's reflective of how how, uh, how early days it still is in terms of the mainstream discussion about mental health because I've said it quite a few times now but I still think it was worth pointing out that when I started writing just generally you know, on blogs and stuff we're talking like just over ten years ago now it was still quite common to see you know articles in certain newspapers or by certain well-known contrarians to say like depression isn't a thing there's no such thing as mental illness it's, a, it's people attention seeking people being lazy you know all, all the stereotypes all the stigma and and while there are still people who think that i don't doubt it for a second it's far less common to see that view put forward as like a mainstream view now put forward and promoted now you'll get people saying things like you know antidepressants are unnecessary or you know, the more people are pretending to have mental health problems. But, you know, the idea that depression doesn't exist isn't uh, isn't the consensus in, in, in most you know, most places anymore, which is good. You know, we've come to that point at least. But there's still so much left to unpack. You know, there's still a lot of <clears throat> discussion to be had around it and there's still much more nuance. And like one of the things I highlight in the, the latest book of, yes, you've got people now who agree like you know, mental health problems are legitimate but what's to be done about them that's a whole other area of debate and discussion and often impassioned arguments as in some people like say antidepressants are essential you need those to live and some people think they're the worst thing ever you know as in the pill shaming it's a very real problem not saying that your medical problems are wrong or you don't have them just that you shouldn't have pills because that's wrong and that's a whole other thing and you get you know, the conflict between psychiatrists and psychologists or psychologists and mental health campaigners who think you should go about it this way and the other side think no you should go about it this way this is how we should define mental health problems this is how they should be dealt with we should approach them from this angle should from that angle and not everyone's going to agree i mean a lot of them are completely uh you know not completely but very incompatible positions like you got the people who think over medicalization is a terrible terrible thing <clears throat> in that you know any you know the idea that what they think has happened like any deviation from human you know, standard human behavior is a medical problem which should be treated with drugs and then suppressed and got rid of and therefore you know, in, in enforcing uniformity in humankind and that's bad you know like or medicalizing real expressions of things like grief and tantrums and on the other hand you have people who you know with a similar or often a similar outcome there are psychologists who do not believe mental health problems are a thing uh, they, they do not think mental health problem, mental health ever goes wrong or you know needs to be fixed. It's that every person's mental expression is a valid reaction to what's happened to them, and it's just that our society 
is too unyielding and too conformist to allow them to be, you know, allowed to express themselves and behave and exist in a way which is technically healthy for them. That's the other end of the extreme. Like I said, no, you should medicalize everything or you should medicalize nothing. And that, um, you know, there are very, those are two extremes of the same argument. But there are people who are passionately argue about both of these things. You can get anti-psychiatry scholarships now in places like Canada, which <clears throat> which psychologists can decide to say why all psychiatry is wrong ever. Put them in a strange overlap with Scientologists, which is a strange, <laughs> strange place to be in. But this yeah. that is a that is a weird um that is a weird um uh what's the word I'm looking for alliance that I started that I didn't expect the kind of anti psychiatry because I guess I never thought I, I forgot that like, uh, Scientology must necessarily be anti psychiatry because that's the, a lot of the set subset of problems they're offering mm. to solve through their methods right and 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 you find yeah you find some very interesting bedfellows mm. at the and not that I'm accusing everyone who sort of has anti psychiatric views of being sympathetic towards Scientology but um it's really interesting isn't it at what kind of like that these things don't necessarily go along obvious ideological lines that kind of like quite diverse sets of thinking can be kind of plonked together around certain positions on the mental health. Yeah, spectrum. totally. I mean, like the Scientology thing, <clears throat> it's, um, as is my reading, as far as I understand it, you know, allegedly and all those words, which mean you won't get sued. Um, of course. You know, Scientology is anti-psychiatry because L. Ron Hubbard made up his own system of you know, fixing mental health called Dianetics, Dietetics, one of those words. And presented it at a psychiatry conference, and they basically laughed him out of the room because he just completely made it up. It's all about aliens measuring your ergonomic ergon. I don't know. Like I wasn't there. <laughs> I haven't looked into it. So then, <laughs> he, from then on, he hated psychiatry because he was a you know, he was a raving egomaniac, and therefore the the religion he founded obviously feels similarly about psychiatry, and that's basically why they don't like it. And. That's no, that's that's it. But then the, the the psychology people who don't like psychiatry, there's a more ugly, well informed reason for that because you know, there's a lot of problems with the medical model of mental health problems in that treating mental health problems like you would treat a physical ailment, like most medicine does. The idea that a patient comes in, you find out what's wrong with them, you tell them what's wrong with them, find the source, uh, give them some intervention, be it drugs, therapy, or whatever, and fix it. And then they go away and get fixed, and then they're better. That's how a lot of physical ailments are approached. Whether it works them or not is a whole other thing, but you know, that's the general default method. Uh, whereas that doesn't necessarily work for mental health problems a lot of the time. It's like the idea of there being an obvious cause, there being you know, the patient just being completely passive through the process. These are all things which can often make things worse because it's, you know, it's something going on inside your mind. And therefore, they arrive at the whole psychiatry is bad conclusion uh, by a completely different route. Uh, but that's that is again a big part of what we come back to earlier on about um, these things are so subjective. These experiences they're so also so common. You know, depression and anxiety extremely common conditions. Uh, between them, sort of count for like five hundred million people throughout the world. It's a good chunk of the human race deals with these things. So the experience of depression, anxiety is going to be very very common, but also a lot of time very, very subjective, so very unique to a lot of people. So everyone's going to have this thing which is like a huge part of their life, which they know intimately, and therefore will want to say, I know how this works because I've dealt with this all my life. And, you know, they have done. That's a fair point to make. But then someone else can have experienced the same condition in a completely different way. So they'll say, no, no, you have to do it like this. 
I took antidepressants. They didn't do anything for me. I took antidepressants. They were the only thing that saved me. And those are both completely valid conclusions, uh, valid perspectives. They're clearly not compatible. You can't have, you know, there's a system where you say, like, antidepressants are both essential and terrible. That's not, you know, that's not a thing you can have when you're trying to find a sort of a common cause. I think if people haven't got in the mental health world, but if you have got kids, you find parenting communities have a similar thing. Like, there are people who are extremely passionate about don't wait to sleep, don't, you know, breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or formula feeding. Like, these are all extremely... Uh, angry <laughs> discussions that happen a lot of the time because being a parent is a very very common experience but also you know it's 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 fundamental to who you are it's a, when you're a parent that's a huge massive life change you've put a lot of time work and effort into that so if you've raised a child raised a child more than one you have a lot of experience and insight of what it means to be a parent but your child and your relationship with them and how you went about it were different to everyone else's so everyone has a lot of impassioned <laughs> it takes on a very important subject a lot of them don't match up and that's exactly what happens in the mental health world a lot of the times in yeah i i have all these very legitimate experiences about this very subject matter but other people have the same which don't match up with mine and therefore you know it becomes impassioned and argumentative and a hot button topic very readily I think, yeah, you kind of like side side there, which kind of like, you know, I think sums quite a lot of it up. And I think the comparison with parenting is is really, really shrewd, actually, Dean, because it, it's that feeling of if someone disagrees with you or does it differently, it's hard not it's hard to get mm. away from that feeling that there's an element even if they don't mention it, that maybe they're judging you, maybe that they think that the way you did it was Absolutely. wrong. Yeah. And part of you privately has lots of emotions about it, thinks probably you did get it wrong quite a lot. So that comes up and you get defensive. You're like, I, what do you mean I woke my child up? Was I damaging my child? Should I have put my child to sleep on their front or their back? But now I was doing that wrong and I was risking them. Oh, I'm going to... And, and it's hard not to feel... I, 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 you know, on one level, I can really understand why people are very emotional about mental illness and mental health, whether it's happened to them, whether somebody, the chances are that if it's not happened to them, it's almost certainly going to have happened, affected profoundly someone that they <clears> love. Absolutely, yeah. And the feeling that they might have sought the wrong treatment for themselves or someone else, it's so hard not to have a visceral reaction. And if people are saying to you, medication is a really great first line treatment, and you, your experiences, you tried three and they did nothing for you. It's really hard. If you feel a bit like you've been abandoned. It's a, even though that's not what people are saying mm. to you, it takes you right back to that moment of it not working. And it's hard. So how can you I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about how you then attempt to diffuse that in your own mm. own work, because you, you're going to get readers who are going to have, you know, it's not like you're just talking about you know, the history of golf as a sport or something, you're going to have pe readers who may have incredibly emotional uh, like reactions to what you're talking about. So how do you start kind of like moving into this when you're writing? Yeah, about? I mean, this is a particular... <clears throat> this is a particular issue when you're writing about mental health, obviously, because that is such a... Something people are so impassioned about and have such direct visceral experience of. And I think, same with the whole... Um, oh, the, the issue earlier on about... We, you know, there's no certainty around this. How do you convey that? I think you just got to 
own up to it. You've got to say up front. And again, my current book, the introductory chapter says, I will almost certainly be saying stuff here, which you're, many readers are not going to agree with. You're not going to like it. You're not going to take this um, on board. You're not going to, you know, you're going to find it completely differs to what your experiences are. And your experiences are very much valid. They're your own. You had them. You know, they all happened to you. And, you know, they are a big part of your history and your development. So, to, for me to go and say that that's not a thing or or ignore it completely is going to be upsetting and it's it's not possible to avoid that and i think you know you have to make these things clear up front because you know I've, I've i'm on the record as i'm not a big fan of self-help books or the whole industry around that i mean if people like it if they find it benefits them fair enough but i'm not one of the people who embrace it i'm one of the people who sort of propagate it in terms of people who write the book saying i don't know you i've never met you read a person but um i can't fix your life and here's how you do it because it's no there is no way that's going to work for any everybody you know some people read that and find it suits their advice suits their life perfectly and they read it and go oh that's exactly what i needed thank you i feel better now and many people will read it and it won't help them it'll have make no bearing or no practical use for them and they still spend money on it and you know i'm you know, the idea you can go up to, you know, not even go up to a stranger, just put them out there and saying, whoever reads this will benefit because I know everything about what's wrong with you and I'm going to fix it. <clears throat> I just can't, I can't get myself in that sort of headspace. So I'm far more frank about such matters as this is, you know, I'm going to upset people. Or if, if you're reading this and you want me to say something specific, odds are I won't because, again, I... I don't know you, dear reader person. I have no idea who you are when you're reading this. So this is a this is a tome which I put out there in the world. Whoever picks it up is beyond my control. I think that's something which I sort of become more and more aware of in that, you know, the reader and writer relationship isn't like a one-to-one. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a back and forth. People can now get in touch with you and they do. And I can't remember my website. And I always like it when people get in touch and say, really, <clears throat> thank you for writing that. I want to know about this. And like, I'm always always try to get back to people and help them if I can so you know that's something I like to do but it's how responsible am I for saying like can I feasibly cover all bases here and I try to and I try to be as you know, encompassing as possible because that's what I think the advantage of writing about the brain is that well, this is the brain we all have and it has these fundamental properties that affect us all so you can use that as a base and then say well when this happens then we experience this when this happens we experience that and I think Defaulting to the brain a lot does make it more objective. When I say the depressed brain has you know, reduced levels of neuroplasticity in certain key regions, that's an objective statement and there's no judgment in that. It's not the saying, you know, therefore you don't need medication or therefore your therapy was wrong. Like you just think well, this is how what we think happens when depression occurs. Because depression is you know, it's both unhelpfully a rather generic term, but also that can be quite helpful. So let's say like depression, people can have various different types of depression, but you know the underlying mechanism is believed to be kind of related or interlinked. So I can say, we think this happens in the brain when you've got depression. Here's why this happens, here's why we think that happens. I say there's no value judgment. There's no personal element to that. It's It, it divorced it from the subjective experience. I'm just saying why these experiences occur. Now, whether they differ from, between people is, you know, just a f- fact of life. But I'm not saying you did it wrong or you shouldn't have had this. I'm just saying that when the brain does this, where you think that leads to increased anxiety, where you think that leads to poor control of moods. And 
whether you agree with that or not is kind of not the point. It's just a case of this is what we think is happening. So, yeah, it's it's not a subjective evaluation. It's it's um, it's an objective position. It's so like you know, this is what the evidence says happens when you have a mental. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a bit about you were saying mm-hmm. objective, um, and I'm really interested to kind of like pin that down from a science point of view because of course, as you were saying we accrue data slowly through consensus and and slowly building up a kind of um, scaffold of probabilities. How do we know, you know, things you're talking about, like um, talking about decreased neuroplasticity in certain regions of the brain when someone is depressed, given that what you're saying is that the DSM and ICD both have that depre- major depressive disorder is to an extent a moving target, or certainly it has hmm. um, edges that are being updated. Yeah. Um, you know, how have we defined that, and and how have we actually capped? Because I, I think my just to give the context of this, I'm saying it because as a layman, my idea of like our ability to scan human brains i saw my um daughter in an is it called an f nears like cap or something when she was two those sort of ones that go on the head they look like a big medusa oh, I think so, yeah. on the head mm. right yeah. yeah and um they were for like a children's um brain scan thing and my idea was we could just watch people think now obviously that's <laughs> no, not no. what a brain scan is and you talk a bit about that in um in, in the happy brain about your own kind of idea about what uh, a fMRI scan can and can't tell you, and I just wondered if you could drill down into that a little bit because my, I guess when I didn't know anything, you know, initially I just thought that we could just switch on a kind of X-ray of the brain and we'd see sort of like parts of the brain that had gone all sort of floppy and we'd go, oh, I see, there's decreased neuroplasticity with my neuroplasticity sensor. Could you break yeah. that down a little? Bit? <clears throat> well, that's actually something else I think is in that book, but I've written about it whenever I can, really, in that. Yeah, that's. Um, I guess it, it does reflect in a lot of the stuff I write about too. Because um, although we say like oh, it's a very complex subject, I don't like to lose the complexity if I can. I like to emphasize that this is really complex, and doing this is not a straightforward process. Because okay, you can, you have this idea that you can put people in a brain scanner, turn it on. Oh look, they're thinking this. Turn me out again. We're done. You know, like 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 a metal detector <laughs> yeah. or something, or you know. Exactly. That's genuinely yeah. well, what that's I thought it would be like. Totally reasonable thought... because that's how it's presented a lot of the time in, in mainstream coverage. You know, a lot of a lot of corporations use it now. Neuromarketing is a thing, which is annoying because it's sort of, it suggests there's this easily easily understood, easily manipulated link between something we experience and the brain bit which controls it. So, like you know, you put something in an fMRI scanner, you hold up a carrot, they see the carrot, bit of the brain lights up. Oh, that's the carrot center of the brain. You know? The carrot organization <laughs> has a lot of publicity for the next few weeks. You know, you know, we found the carrot part of the brain, so eat more carrots. And uh, that is how it goes a lot of the time. And that isn't how neuroscience works at all. It's such a incredibly complex process to find which part of the brain is actually active. Those videos you see afterwards are like um, it's the real time activity, perhaps from the fMRI. But that you know, that's just a lot of blurred light, blurred lights. What what do you know about? What does that tell us? And how, trying to decipher that is something useful. Is very thorny problem and one which actually does you know 
it has led to some scandals and that you know, if you interpret this data in a certain way you get good results if you interpret it in a more rigorous way you don't so you should use the more rigorous no but they don't because you need them and so on and so on you know it's um it's you know, it's a professor chris chambers like the garden of fork in path thing you can just find the route you want to get the result you want and that's not quite how science should work you shouldn't just say well if you crunch numbers this way we get a good result if you do it any other way we don't we'll ignore those and you know it's almost confirmation bias in that respect so I do like to try and you know, combat this oversimplification, this um, misleading uh, stuff where I can. And again, it comes back to assuming the reader is at least as smart as I am, just doesn't know what I know. So I, think, I don't think, you know, you, people don't know this, but I don't think it's something they are incapable of knowing. I know I've been through the system a lot. I've got a lot more experience. But that just means I have perhaps a, a quicker ability to understand it. If someone takes the time to explain it, which is what I'm essentially trying to do, then it's, I don't think it's necessarily that challenge in a prospect. So, you know, when I say we think that this part of the brain is less active during depression, this comes from not just brain scans, although I've helped a great deal, sort of, you know, monitoring blood levels, I mean, post you know, posthumous you know, autopsies, you know, biopsies or things like that, and people who do die of various conditions, and animal models, uh, just like blood samples, taking the chemicals out and things like that, and putting drugs in and see what happens or someone responds well to this. So it's, it's a lot of research and ongoing data gathering which leads to these improved uh, or at least updated uh, models of how things work. So, you know, it's an ongoing thing and it happens quite, quite reliably, yeah. Do you think, how, how reliable do you think animal models are in studying something like depression you know how much can we because that's another area that um and i almost feel like i'm i i should say i do realize that when you're trying to give consideration to all sides i do feel dean sometimes feel for you that you're kind of fighting with one arm <laughs> tied behind your back because there's there's people who can just go i there's people who are able to be very skeptical and rigorous about the stuff they disagree with and then very anecdotal about the stuff mm. that they do agree with in a way that kind of loads it and must be very frustrating for you because you're trying to kind of play fair and it means you have to be rigorous with the stuff you do agree with. But I just wonder, you know, how... I guess some people listening will go, well, how do we how do we talk... You know, what, what's a depressed... Can <laughs> a mouse be meaningfully depressed? How useful is that as a... Uh, as a um, as a model for depression in a human, do we are we getting at what it is to be depressed in a human? When we look yeah, at well, that's obviously a, a big problem. That you know, we are the only species we know of capable of having these complex thoughts and inner lives, and you know, other species aren't sentient. They don't have self awareness like we do. They don't have, you know, the complex inner life that we can enjoy. And people say, well, how do you know? It's, well, you know, it's, <laughs> I guess you can never know for certain, but based on what we know about how brains work. Other species don't have the internal architecture which supports all these abilities that we have. And our brains are significantly, proportionately larger than any species our size in terms of nature, and our, our closest and evolutionary cousins. So if we take the assumption that, yes, only humans are capable of this level of internal complexity, then yes, it's a to totally valid point to see how and why would a mouse model be any use in studying these things. And I think it's a, a lot of it's relative, as in, you know, when you, <clears throat> you know, we, we can study a mouse's memory, like put a, put a bit of cheese in the right part of the maze, or actually fruit, I mean, they like, they don't actually like cheese, that's a common myth as well, but um, 
Um, put a recruit in some part of the maze. They go find it. Put it again later on. Like they'll remember where it is. So you can see. You, know, you can test how good a mouse's memory is, or mouse or rat or pigeon, whatever you want to use. And then, you know, if you find out, you no, know, if they get to a certain age and they can't do it anymore, I think well, they've clearly got memory problems. So, you know, roundabout ways so you can use this to make a model of like dementia or something like that. Um, and you can you know, sort of take a sample from the cells and say, oh, they've got all these tubules built up. So you can sort of see it's, it's, it's analogs, essentially. It's in a much simpler version of the complex stuff we do. It's sort of like you know, trying to work out where in a city um, things are, like where would be the best place to live from looking at the blueprints or like the original design of uh, the, the original city. It's not going to be perfect. You're not going to get anywhere near the, you know, the ebb and flow of life and society but you can have a sort of good idea of where to look at least or try here and that's what we have like human trials if you have like um, mice or guinea pigs taking a certain drug and they don't um they don't show any particular ill effects or show some improvements then you can move on to human trials then because they're not like the humans we deem more important and that's you know some people argue that you shouldn't do that but well we do do that. I mean, what, what, what's the, you know, there's, don't really have many alternatives right now. If we get to the point where we can uh, stimulate a human brain in like a computer bank or like use like cell bodies and stuff, then great. You know, we won't need to do animal stuff anymore. But at the moment, that's the best system we got. So, um, yeah, so it, it is, um, you know, but it's a, it's a hot button subject. People do not like animal research and rightly so. It's not very nice, but those who oppose it, seem to overlook the fact that most of it happens on rats or fruit flies and they always focus on the, the cute ones which is itself more cynical i suppose in that uh, you know other creatures do deserve a bit of respect to make them the, the nobel prize winning discovery of the synapse now it works was um study on uh, sea slugs because they have massive neurons and they got the, the technology of the time of the 70s needed you know they couldn't get to the level we can get to now so they had to find really big cells to stab with electrodes and see what happens so you know, they, they're really hideous creatures to look at, but no one puts them on a, you know, stop animal protest, animal rights, animal testing banner and stuff. So, um, so yeah, no, that's a, you know, again, it's, it's an impassioned subject. It's, um, you try and get you new know, ones across. Like, you can admit, yeah, I don't like it. No one likes doing it, but it's a thing that we need to do if you want to save innocent lives, human lives. You know, so we, you know, we do value each other more than other species. That is just how we work. And that's, uh, you know, that's something, you know, I haven't, dealt with it much because it's not something people like to think about and you know it, i have no answer to that I, mean, I can't say well this is how we fix that it's just like this is the reality of the situation and i think a lot of the time that comes down to that saying, like this is how it works this is how we this is all we're capable of right now because we aren't we aren't far long enough in our development our technology to to, to do it otherwise and you know, it's, it's, people suggest otherwise and say it's all you know those are the ones who are actually being misleading so yeah again it's a tricky balance to tread but i much prefer to be rigorously honest and upfront rather than sort of try and you know pass it away or fudge the fudge the figures or something because i don't get anything from that personally but I, again i have no particular agenda to to push like i have no model or like no theory that i want to convince people of my whole agenda is just like well here's stuff that i know what i think is important now you know it too whether you agree with it or not is not really part of my job but um I'm going to try and convince you, and hopefully you will. But if you don't, then fair enough. We'll have to call it quits. So I, I, that's really thanks, Dean. That's a really um, that that's a really sort of thorough sort of like summary of, of some of the issues. I know in your 
latest book you go into a lot of the ways uh I know that there's no I I don't want to oversimplify things because you've been (laughs) so careful to kind of like be balanced but I I I suppose I'll say the ways that the brain can go wrong is one way of looking at it but another way is you know different models of emotional distress or um ways that our thinking can go wrong because it's not always necessarily on an emotional valence it can be perceptual as well and I I won I wondered if you could <laughs> this I feel like I'm this feels like I'm setting you up as a kind of piece of gotcha journalism I honestly I'm not but I wondered since we've kind of gone around it a little bit if you could give us a kind of definition or your conception of what is happening in in depression. Um, well, there are quite a few theories as to what's actually going on at the moment. Um, well, not on the moment, it's in like what's always been happening, but the modern understandings. Uh, lots of different models approaching it, uh, like the cognitive model, which say that the, the underlying neuroscience isn't actually the most important part. It's like how we end up perceiving it and you know, contextualizing it mentally, which needs to be looked at. There's um, the inflammation model, which points that. Uh, Stress and cells being inflamed is a big part of what impairs their functioning uh, because of how the brain works, how cells work and everything like that. Uh, there are arguments that depression is actually an evolved reaction and it should be happening because we think about it, you know, when we were, you know, I don't want to say cavemen, but you know, primitive humans living on the savannah when um, you know, life was a constant struggle against the elements. Something really bad happened to you, you, you would need the time to stop and chill and sort of process it to in order to function better but you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't sort of you, you wouldn't have the inclination to stop and just do nothing for a bit so the completely low motivation and sort of moods happen or depression is an evolved thing to make us take the time we need to recover from things i personally don't think that's how it works my personal theory is um well my, my personal preferred theory is the neuroplasticity model uh, because I'm a neuroscientist, because like you know, when you when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a brain, which is um, yeah. not how that phrase goes, but I'm going to use it. And <laughs> yeah, so it argues that the reason we have depression is that because well, all neurons to a certain extent have neuroplasticity, the ability to change and adapt to whatever they you know, whatever the stimulation they have, whatever happens to them, or happens to us, and how our brain processes it, and which is fine, uh, but you know, the, the brain's ability to change and adapt is an integral part of how it does everything, essentially. I mean, neurons are plastic and flexible, and that's why they're so powerful, and we have you know, these abilities in the first place. But if the, the cell's ability to adapt and change is reduced, then they won't respond, and they'll be less active. And so if they get worn out, essentially, and that's now the theory is that's what's happening in depression. The parts which regulate mood are being overstressed. And therefore, they become exhausted and they cannot change and adapt. Because that's one of the, you know, the key facets of depression. As everyone will point out, you know, otherwise everyone, every naysayer will point out, you know, everyone gets depressed now and again. You know, everyone has a bad mood. Yes, everyone does have low mood. But they don't only have mood, low mood for two weeks solid. You know, that's, that's the unusual part, really. Like people can be really upset, really sad, really down after losing a loved one, after a relationship breakup, after you know, serious life events have gone badly. But you know the mood will change. They'll have good days. They'll have bad days. They'll have ups and downs. Whereas with depression, it's more flat. You know, you just get stuck in this one low mood state, and you can't get out of it. And that's not normal. And this can be explained if, like, well, if the parts of the brain which help you change mood or control mood, if they're lost plasticity, if they've been exhausted, then yeah, you wouldn't see a change in mood. You would see a fixed mental or emotional state. 
uh, be it flat or be it just um, constant despair or anger even. That's another facet of depression. So it's not about what actually the mood is even. It's more importantly about the fact the mood never changes. That's why it's a disorder, I suppose. And uh, yeah, so for a while it was believed the whole chemical imbalancing that you know you haven't got enough neurotransmitters to allow you to be happy because that's what antidepressants do. They boost neurotransmitter levels and... Uh, but no, but the, they, they boost them almost immediately. When you take an antidepressant, those neurotransmitters in your head are increased pretty much right away. You know, the, our metabolism, metabolism is that fast. But most antidepressants take a couple of weeks to kick in, you know, two to three weeks, perhaps even longer. So clearly something else is happening. It's not just that, because otherwise, you know, if it was just low chemical levels, that would be fixed immediately. It's clearly something more fundamental or more intrinsic or more long-term. So yeah, if it's, the antidepressants are actually increasing the level of activity in um, you know, the, the parts of the brain which are currently lacking it, then yes, then they would take a while to kick in. And that's arguably why new neurotransmitters based on things like ketamine or psychedelics seem to have a much more potent effect right away. They act on different neurotransmitters and they're more powerful, so they you know, raise activity faster. So that's no, the current thing I'm leaning towards with regards to how depression works is it's a it's a deficit in neuroplasticity. Our our brain has lost the ability to change mood because the cells which do that are worn out. Not dead, but they're worn out and medication or therapy can coax them back into a more normal level of functioning. So that's really interesting, Dean. So if that's the case then, if that were the case, assuming that that were, were true, then... Why would it be that when you we look at even when we look at something like psilocybin, the trials with psilocybin are still it's, I guess very early days, mm. but um, with is it is ketamine yeah. is the yeah. nasal spray one? Yeah, um, we're still only seeing. Uh, I say only, but um, you know, I'm not. I'm not actually. I'm not actually not sure what the rate of response is, but I think you know with the early depression trials and they were particularly looking at people who had specifically treatment re uh, resistant mm. depression that it was about a third of people responded very well i mean i'm just going to repeat the old kind of like rule of threes right but like it, the, the, about three people about a third of the people seemed to respond very very well and had a remission about a third of people had some response but not total response and then a third of people didn't seem to respond at all now what do you think is your hunch i know you can't give an absolute answer is going on there why would some people have you know the neuroplasticity is restored some people only a bit and some people it doesn't help them at all if they're all taking this uh, presumably serotonergic kind of uh drug that is in your your hunch is that it might be increasing neuroplasticity. What do you think is going on there? Because there's quite a yeah. range of responses. <coughs> well, ketamine, uh, first off, ketamine uh, acts on glutamate receptors, which are far more numerous and potent than serotonin. So it's a different mechanism, which is why it acts faster when it does. It's like a couple of hours sometimes, or next day in the most positive cases. So, But again, it's something I address in the book as well, in that I think this idea that the brain, all brains work the same way is... At the most fundamental level, sure, like you no know, neurotransmitters work in this way. They, you know, cells respond in this way. The fundamental parts of the brain, the hippocampus, your amygdala, your thalamus, they all do the same sort of thing. But beyond that, you know, every individual brain is going to be extremely individual, extremely unique. 
And for example, if you consider the fact that everyone has their own unique set of fingerprints, that's just like a few lines on a small patch of skin. And that can offer enough diversity for every single human being to have their own set. You know, that's like 7 billion plus different set of fingerprints like allowed by arrangements of a few bits of line on like five square inches of skin. Think of how much more variable the different connections that exist in someone's brain will be and how they'll develop. Because like the, the shape our brains end up, like far as they look the same, they're all the same shape, but the internal networks, the, things, the way things are connected, how they're connected, to what extent they're connected, how efficiently they're connected, how many connections there are between this bit and that bit and that bit and the next bit and which one gets priority over the other and which one is dominant and which one is not and, and so on and so on and so on. That's the end result of genetics, of environment, of development, of you know, your internal environment, if you have any other disorders or diseases or your general health. So everyone will have an extremely unique brain in terms of overall structure internally. So there'll be plenty of people who have like, you know, like, this part of your brain is what controls uh, your mood. You, you, know, you, one in three people in this test will have it. You have a particularly responsive one in this particular part, which is this drug is targeting. You have a less responsive one. You have a very minimal responsive one. And looking at stuff like um, more typical antidepressants, the serotonergic ones, the SSRIs, they, you know, they've recently discovered in the last couple of years that there are, you know, they thought there was one main serotonin system throughout the brain now they discover there's at least two probably many more and some one of them sort of you know is responsible for better control of mood one of them if it's too active makes mood worse so perhaps in some people that one's more dominant so antidepressants which boost serotonin and other ones making them feel worse it's like they activate the wrong system because that's got a, well, that's got the upper hand in their brain and that leads to the increasing severity of the symptoms in response to antidepressants, which is, you know, which can happen. It's quite a common thing. And it's not more common than, you know, people are getting better from it, but, you know, SSRIs, like your, your Prozacs, those aren't the best antidepressants either. They are just the ones which are most tolerated. There are plenty more powerful ones available, just that they have far more side effects too. So when it comes to a point when, like, okay, you've got depression, I give you these which will fix it, then you'll feel worse because of these five other reasons. So, you know, where's the trade-off? And, That'll vary, that'll vary from person to person too. But yeah, it's all because our individual brains structurally are so different and we will react very differently to the introduction of outside chemicals. That's So, Dean, I, I'm sort of very conscious I, I want to <laughs> honour your time um, during this talk. But one thing that I was really... One thing that is sort of part, actually probably like just a personal bugbear, but I think that you would be uniquely, of all the guests I've had on the show, able to comment on... I'm glad you brought up glutamate and just we touched on mm. some neurotransmitters because I've got like a this is just me being very uh, just uh, I get very easily annoyed when I'm on Twitter and I see someone share like a little image with like here's some ways you can boost your neurotransmitters and they'll be like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin <laughs> and and, and and I feel my like I, I'm not a neuroscientist my background is in I did an MA in prose fiction so i don't know anything right like i can tell you why clarissa dalloway is sad like that's my qualification right i'm not but i just i i know that these people are also not neuroscientists mm. and i know that there's this you know someone on the internet is wrong i know that's happening and it just i find and i wondered because i can't jump in because one 
I'd be an asshole, and two, I don't actually know what I'm talking about. And I wondered if we could do a really quick whistle stop tour, tour of a couple of these sort of main neurotransmitters, just for you to give us like an idea of the complexity involved in them. Could we start with yeah, like, yeah. is that all right? Those, Would yeah. I be able to ask, yeah. name a couple? <clears throat> could we start with maybe glutamate, which uh, you know you 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 mentioned and you know what is that and what's our understanding yeah well glutamate is an amino acid but it's also a neurotransmitter and it it's it's mentioned very rarely in the mainstream which is really weird because if you took look if you took the chemical weight of all the neurotransmitters in the brain 90 percent of it would be glutamate it's it is by far our most used our most used neurotransmitter and our most powerful stimulator so it just does loads of stuff and ketamine works in the glutamate system and so does a lot of psychedelics and that's why they can be so stimulating because they trigger in such a much wider range of brain regions so that's why you end up seeing stuff which isn't there and because you know, your your optic systems are being all triggered which they wouldn't be in other drugs and so yeah so glutamate is i think it's because it's very hard to pin down to one specific role or set of roles it doesn't get co-opted by people who have uh, you know Factuous claims to make they want to make more credible by adding a neurotransmitter to them. So, uh, which, which would probably be the response to a lot of things you're going to say in the next five minutes. But yes, <laughs> well, I was going to I was going to say maybe if we could uh, maybe we could talk about then if I'm I, I can oversimplify all of these Dean just to give you something to bounce off. Then I was going to say the kind of like in my head the opposite of glutamate, which would be like GABA. Can you talk about GABA maybe? Yeah, what well, that's, that does in the brain. That's not that's not a bad assumption actually. Like, GABA is. Um, Gamma aminobutyric acid is the most powerful suppressant neurotransmitter, which is something people I think uh, don't really recognise or appreciate enough. Then you know, they all say like you know, neurotransmitters they squirt and they 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 pass a signal on to the next cell, but sometimes that signal is to you know, basically shut up, stop doing what you're doing, and that's what GABA does. It it suppresses the activity in the cells, it's um, the brain cells it's sent to, it stops them working, and that's really important a lot of the time because it's you know again the example i use is like imagine a city with like a complex road system and suddenly all the red traffic lights didn't work it was all just green it would just be chaos in seconds and gaba is essentially the red light of the brains it right stop that no more of this now no go that way you know or don't, we, we, we've, had, we've had enough of this so gaba's like you know the, the, it's like the teacher stepping into the room saying right like stop that now <laughs> calm down everyone and then you know we can play again later but um Yes, but again, it has so many complex and important roles. And a big part of anxiety is believed to be the loss of GABA function in that it stops suppressing the, or it loses the ability to suppress the amygdala or the other parts of the brain which cause unnecessary fear and tension. And that happens because the GABA system has been compromised and therefore those signals which we don't need and aren't really useful aren't being shut down for various complex reasons. So you said that um, you talked about uh, psychedelics, be my and no, sorry, uh, 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 ketamine maybe stimulating the upregulation of uh, glutamate. I think so. Are there things that give people more that are gabaergic? I don't know what the term is for things that help the brain produce more gaba or states or mm. activities that well, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, um, GABA. the bio, the the, the anxiolytics the barbiturate drugs the ones who like uh, like um oh what's it called again valium you know that's uh that that, that elevates gaba that's uh, that's what that's for but these things can be really addictive because uh that's actually like 
given very sparingly. I mean, I've only ever had a Valium once in my life. That was before my, before my vasectomy because they didn't want me freaking out because it was not a general anaesthetic. It was local. So like, eh, yes, fine, carry on. And that you know, <laughs> helps for them. But I, I was like, wee, <laughs> this is fine. So, but yeah, it's it's really powerful stuff. And because it it shuts down, you know, it increases GABA, which therefore leads to a shutdown of the parts of your brain which worry and stress and, you know, are cautious and nervous and therefore you know, they, they cause all worry and concern and therefore when those parts are shut down you just feel like yeah this is fine you know <laughs> it's like it leaves behind all the don't worry about it stuff and that's great but also it's not necessarily helpful long term so like your brain likes that so like it, it learns quickly saying right i took this thing then all my worries went away all my stresses i like this thing let's take that again you know it's like the fundamental parts of your brain just learn that quite quickly <laughs> So they have to be very sparingly with them. So, uh, yeah. So that's what those do. How about serotonin, I guess, is the um, is, is the elephant in, in the room. That's the one I, I hear. Apart from dopamine, I suppose, serotonin yeah. is the one I hear, uh, particularly yeah. to do with mental well, serotonin health. is the chemical which is raised by the most you know, SSRIs, the ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, your Prozac, your, your, most, your go-to, your default antidepressants these days. Um, because, like they, like I said, they are the ones that produce the least side effects. They're not necessarily the most potent in terms of how, how much they suppress depression or like how much they treat it, provide therapeutic benefit. But they are very tolerable. I mean, most people don't have a visceral bad reaction to them. Some do, some don't, but you know, most most won't. But that means that might mean they won't work either. But I think that's that's led to then people thinking serotonin is a quote unquote happy chemical. No, it's a serotonin. It makes you happy. And it doesn't. It's not for that. It's more about it improves your ability to regulate mood, to change mood. Uh, it makes your brain better at doing that. It doesn't like create mood. I think the, the analogy I use, if you think of as, if you think of like you, you know, your brain's controlling mood as a video game, serotonin isn't the lead character. It's the little guy selling power-ups on the stall, you know, like sort of you know, just providing boosts and you want to accelerate this? You want an extra gun? Yeah, have that. And that makes the job a bit easier. So, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily... It does plenty of things, but it doesn't necessarily boost mood by itself. It um, just makes that more likely to happen, which is, a, which is an important part of depression, obviously, because that's why it's such a big problem. It's mood doesn't change. Yeah, so it doesn't necessarily elevate mood. It just makes mood more likely to be elevated, which is sounds the same, but it's not the same. And that's an important distinction. So um, I want to go on to the, uh, a complex one, but one that I see a lot on YouTube, which is dopamine. Yeah. I've seen a real trend for dopamine fasts and kind of like entrepreneur bros talking about um, dopamine fasting and stuff. Could you talk about the functions of uh, yeah. dopamine? Yeah, dopamine fast just means uh, just having some downtime, just chilling for a bit, but with a scientific name to it. It's, uh, I mean, it's literally <laughs> what it is. There's no sort of merit to calling it dopamine fast. But dopamine is... It has lots of different roles. It has lots of different functions in the brain, like they all do. And like I, I, I explained before, neurotransmitters are to the brain, like what letters of the alphabet are to books. You know, they they pop up a lot. They have lots of different functions and roles. The same one can be used in many different ways. But people latch on to certain ones. And dopamine is the key transmitter in the reward pathway, the part of the brain which provides a sense of pleasure. So therefore, anything you enjoy, any sense of happiness or pleasure or relief or contentment, is often pinned on dopamine. So now dopamine does that. So, no, if you, people won't say now, this will cheer you up. This will boost your dopamine levels or 
pardon me, so on and so on. And that's that's not, you know, that's far too much of an oversimplification. It, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's actively misleading, but it's close because it suggests that don't mean that's all it does. And it's got this reputation now as being like the happy chemical, the one that makes people people happy and stuff. I, mean, I know Naomi Wolf's had a lot of flack recently for spouting such absolutely ridiculous theories about the COVID vaccine. But it was only eight years ago, neuroscience were calling out a use of dopamine in the book Vagina, I think she was called, and she was um, was making these wild claims about dopamine, what it does, and none of it's accurate or even vaguely coherent. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a common thing. People just flagging the dopamine as a some sort of omnipresent pleasure chemical but you know the example i always use to counteract that is and if you want to raise dopamine levels like all these gurus say they say no you're just going to boost your dopamine levels or bring up your dopamine levels activate your dopamine system what you need to do is get hold of some levodopa the default medication for parkinson's disease because that's literally what it does parkinson's disease is where a part of the brain the substantia nigra degrades and that causes the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And that's the part of the brain which uses dopamine to do what it does. So basically, the, the underlying problem with Parkinson's disease is a part of the, you know, a, 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 a loss of new dopamine activity in a certain part of the brain. You boost dopamine activity, it compensates for that. But it, you know, it's, it's a drug, it's not targeted, it boosts dopamine throughout the brain. And, you know, you can say what you want about people with Parkinson's and uh, many different things, but in a constant state of bliss, they are not. Because, you know, when you boost dopamine throughout the brain, lots of bad stuff happens too. Like the the, the typical things you think of with some of the Parkinson's, like that constant movement, the twitchiness, that's not the disease. That's the medication doing that. It's up in the dopamine systems and all the effects of like constant movement and things and sort of, you know, edginess. That, that is the medication, not the, um, not, not, not the underlying problem. It's just like it's better than the underlying problem until that progresses to the point where you need more medication and so on and so on. But yeah, so you know, dopamine does a lot of things, and just focusing on it, the fact that it makes you it allows you to feel pleasure is you know, it's not actively misleading, like I say, but it's really not helpful, I think. I've got two more, Dean, if that's all right to it. just ask and just to <laughs> round off this. Uh, so, so I would like um, endorphins, um, please. We all would, yes. <laughs> <That'd be nice>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, that's um, endorphins, like the opiate system of the brain. The uh, People say like they're a pleasure chemical because when you experience them, <clears throat> you experience an intense euphoria and you know, they, they are what the opiates uh, drugs work on. Like the the opiate drugs like heroin and morphine, they get into our brain and they trigger the parts of the brain which are triggered by endorphins. And some people estimate that, you know, heroin, the most powerful one, is one-fifth as powerful as the, our natural endorphins in the same in a similar dose, which is like, when you think about that, it's like, wow, we've got that in, just in our heads this entire time. Why aren't we just constantly sat and drooling all day every day? You know, like, some people are, let's be honest, but... Uh, but it's, um, <laughs> I think they're not for like, everyday use by and large, at least not in that sense. They are like, they are the analgesic, but they are the painkillers when, oh, if everyone's done running, like they, they talk about the aerobic rush or like the runner's high when you, you strain and stress your body to the point where, you know, it's like constant pain, it's not shutting down, not stopping, right, I'm just going to blanket the pain system with this stuff. And like, poof. And it's, it's more of a, a painkiller than a pleasure giver. I think, um, 
example I use is saying like to describe endorphins as pleasure chemicals is like saying a fire engine is a machine that makes things wet, which it, it does, but that's not what it's for. You know, it's it's for you know that's that's a that's a byproduct of what it does really. Uh, but you know, there are some studies now which suggest that low-level endorphins are actually a big part of things like OCD, as in low-level endorphins activity in our brain lets us uh, let's our brain recognize when something's done. So, like you, you have a task, I did the task, it's finished, and then the brain goes, okay, that's finished. Small bursts of endorphin to sort of like, oh, good, job done, move on to the next thing. Not 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 the point where you can find it like whoa, giddy high, but just you no, know, the brain goes, okay, that's done then. But a flaw in the endorphin system or like a deficit means like that. That's done signal is never, never received. So people dwell on things of repetitive activities, which you know indicative of OCD. So you know, again, even they have diverse functions. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm learning so much. <laughs> well, that's what awesome. I do. <laughs> and the final one I want to, the, uh, the final one I want to touch on, near uh, uh, is um, is oxytocin. Yes, things. the cuddle hormone. Yes, that's been brought up a lot. It's uh, yeah, it's. It's an emotional chemical. It's sort of um, it's released when people have an emotional connection, or it enhances the emotional connection we have with other people. Now, that like serotonin, doesn't necessarily mean it creates the emotional connection. It just makes it more potent. Uh, I mean, it it released a lot. I mean, it, in most earliest evolutionary sense, it's it's believed to originate from the mother-child bond when like um, when a mother's breastfeed, the oxytocin is released, so it really enhances the emotional bond you have with your baby, and then you become so passionately protective of it and you know, the, the connection is completely two-way so yeah it's like a, that's the original source of it but our evolution took us in so many different directions now uses more of a social um, transmitter it happens a lot of you know you can become emotionally invested in a friend or you know, just someone you, you just care about in a, in a platonic way which is something we can do now which is good because oxytocin allows us to do that well not just that but makes it easier certainly um, it can some studies suggest it can enhance negative emotions too. As in, like if you don't like someone, and you take some oxytocin, you'll really not like them. So, like your your negative emotions about that person will be enhanced as well. So, you know, it sort of it sort of ramps up the emotional connection system you know, in whatever form it takes. I think I discussed it in the happy brain, but um, you know, it, it's obviously released a lot during sexual activity because. That, well, how much closer a bond can they be with another person? So, but that may be why the whole friends with benefits thing, which people look in sitcoms try all the time, is so hard to do. Because, yes, you have an existing emotional bond. We're friends; we can have sex as well. But then, once you have sex, that emotional bond is enhanced by the release of oxytocin, which happens during sexual activity. So, that's when it becomes more complex, and so it's harder to shut that down because it's been heightened by what you by the activity you're engaging in. Is a reasonable heuristic um, with oxytocin, and I know there is no probably no such thing in, but that that it, um that it has because you were saying it, it it might increase negative effect as well that it's kind of it just it might increase the sort of in group out group thing that we become a bit closer to the people we consider to be within our circle of friends and maybe a bit more suspicious of strangers because I can imagine that being adaptive if you mm. have a baby. To be worried that someone's going to be protective of the child, but maybe uh, worried about anyone, any other thing that might be an outside threat to that. Yeah, child I think so. Well. I think there seems a lot of <clears throat> evidence to suggest that is a fairly common effect. I mean, the in-group out-group thing is far more potent than a lot of people even realise. I think, in that you know, we are very, very social creatures, so we humans, but social with those we 
you know, are predisposed to like and those who are different tend to trigger a negative reaction at first, which can be and should be overridden quite easily by you know, the typical modern brain, but some people don't seem to put the effort in. Um, but, yeah, there's probably well, plenty of studies about that and some things which uh, even small scale, like <clears throat> uh, men with their partners uh, in social situations given oxytocin will suddenly sort of stick a lot closer to them, uh, especially when other attractive women wander around, sort of like, no, 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 like, this is mine, not you, like, you, you, you are a threat. And um, you, know, you may not realize they're doing it, but it does seem to enhance these fundamental, both bonding and prejudice uh, reactions too. So, there's, yeah, there's definitely something to that. Awesome. Dean, thank you so much for um, joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed um, shamelessly <laughs> picking your brains. If people want to um, find you online or you as a as a, as a writer um where where's the best place for them to go to find out more about what you do uh, yeah just go to my website uh, deanbonnet.com it's my um uh you know it's just like all my links are there my socials my books and the various things i've done so yeah deanbonnet.com it uh, was not taken weirdly enough okay i'll put a link to that i'll put <laughs> i'll put that in the uh, show notes to today's episode um thanks very much for joining me and um everyone listening uh thanks for listening and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing